What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of many parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and I really love birds. I just can't get enough of them dang birds. Today on the show, winter is coming. (laughs) Remember that from the dragon show? Well, we won't be talking about the dragon show, but we will be talking about how animals prepare for the winter. From hibernation to magical wardrobe changes to cryogenic freezing, discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, when, if ever, is the right time to breathe through your butt? What is hibernation? How do you distinguish hibernation from a really, really long nap? While there are definitely some distinctive features of hibernation, like many behaviors in evolutionary biology, it's hard to get away with one easy definition. But one thing's for sure, hibernation isn't just an extreme nap, it's more akin to stasis, like something you'd come up with in a science fiction setting. There are many ways that animals cope with the winter, and we'll discuss some of the wildest winter adaptations, so let's start with this most famous method and reveal the weird and sci-fi details beyond our childhood image of a really sleepy bear in a nightcap. Joining me today to prepare for winter is comedian, writer, and co-host of the Bechtel cast, Caitlin Durante. Hello, I'm also a sleepy bear. Aww. <laughs> We're here in our pajamas, mm-hmm. all tucked in, you know, old-timey beds. Very cozy. Yeah, very cozy. Yes. Yeah. So listen to this when you're driving and just let yourself drift off. <laughs> Yes, very safe. <laughs> well, how much do you know about hibernation? You know what? Not a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, my my personal favorite bear is, of course, Paddington. And Paddington, I do yes. not believe that Paddington hibernates uh, in uh, any of the movies. Right. So, I, I don't remember him ever doing that. Um, or in the books, in the novels, the right. series. Perhaps Peruvian bears do not hibernate. Well, they wouldn't need to right. for the winter. That would uh, make sense because it's a tropicalish yeah. environment. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I, there hasn't been a lot of um, hibernation visibility on screen, at least that I've seen. That's right. And that, and the I only ever learn things if I see them in movies. Right, and <laughs> so. and that's that's with the Bechdel cast. You guys talk about movies mm-hmm. and sort of from a from the perspective of like, hey. Are there women in movies? Yeah. We should we should usually, find that out. Usually not. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's just like, whoops, we for, forgot to put women uh, in here. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> and then you put them in and then they just spend the whole time talking about boys. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that hibernation is one of those things that 
we learn about briefly in school and it's just like, oh, bears go to sleep for the winter. Mm -hmm. And then there's not much else learned about it. That's truly all I know. Although maybe, maybe the education system is better now. Like I I think that maybe (laughs) children are smarter than we ever used to be. But uh, yeah, let's get into some of the details about it that I think are really bizarre. And it's one of these things that everybody kind of knows about hibernation. But when you actually look at the the scientific facts behind it, it gets a lot weirder than hmm. you expect. Can't wait. So hibernation occurs during the winter. Uh, in summer, there are there is like a summer form of hibernation called estivation. Oh. It occurs in mammals. For reptiles and amphibians, it's called brumation. So it's uh, a similar thing, but it's not called hibernation. Okay. Um, the only exception is the common poorwill, which is a nocturnal bird species in the family of nightjars. And it goes into a state of torpor for weeks or months at a time. And this is, I think, the only bird species that's known to do this. Okay. Of the mammals that do hibernation, bears Squirrels, chipmunks, bats, skunks, hedgehogs, and dwarf and fat-tailed lemurs are among them. And dwarf and fat-tailed lemurs are actually some of the only primates known to hibernate. And they can go up to 10 minutes without breathing when they're hibernating. What? Yeah, yeah. So this is where we get into some of the things about hibernation that makes it really clear it's not just sleeping. It's Mm -hmm. not just a nap. So to prepare for hibernation, the body temperature drastically drops and brain activity greatly decreases to a coma-like state, and the metabolism slows Mm -hmm. so that you can basically be in this coma state without dying of starvation. Right. And the heart rate can drop drastically. So a grizzly bear's heart goes from about 84 beats per minute to 19 beats per minute. Whoa. Which is pretty crazy. And there's... The mechanism of how this works is really interesting for a bear. So the heart isn't damaged, which you would think it would. So like if a heart beat slows too much in like a human, you're going to really damage the heart, mm-hmm. and which could be fatal because the blood builds up in the left ventricle, and then that can cause the ventricle to expand and become damaged. Ouch. And yeah, that's no good. <laughs> you don't you don't want your heart to be like an overly full water balloon, right? Essentially, I mean, when we learn about, I mean, speaking of wintertime, the Grinch, when his heart grows three sizes, he that would day, die. He would die. He would die. That yeah. would be um, very bad for well, him. Well, unless I don't know what species the Grinch is, but maybe yeah. there's something about his heart that I don't I don't know I think he would most certainly suffer an aortic dissection from that like there there's no you know (laughs) let's let's fix Grinch to be accurate so that the Grinch dies and everyone's sad (laughs) (laughs) so uh in the bear well maybe the Grinch has some special heart uh physiology like like a bear right so so the bear's left ventricle stiffens so as the blood pools in it from not beating as much it doesn't damage the muscle and the heartbeat is significantly weakened so that that stiffer heart muscle won't be damaged by the left h or so okay (laughs) the the left atrium pumps blood into the left ventricle. And so if the left atrium is like really pumping hard blood into a stiff surface of the left atrium, it's like taking a water balloon full of blood and like mm-hmm. smashing it against a brick wall. It's going to like explode. Something I do every Thursday. Well, it is cathartic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, but instead of smashing, if you kind of just like gently press it against the wall and there's like a little opening where the blood can squish out, like, mm-hmm. then, you know, you got a functioning heart. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. So that's impressive. But a chipmunk's heart rate slows from 200 beats per minute to only about five. What? Which is... it? It's, that decrease is wild. Yeah. And it really, it's it's almost like they're in the state of almost death, like almost stasis. That's like one beat for every 10 seconds, yeah. roughly? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, if we, if we got anywhere near that, you'd be dead. Mm-hmm. It's just, you can't survive that kind of slow heartbeat. But it is incredible that they're basic and, and like... One thing is if you wake up a hibernating animal like a squirrel, uh, the effort, it takes them a long time to wake up. They can't just like instantly awake right. uh, because their body has to essentially come back to life. Come back from, online. Yeah. From yeah. this 
state of stasis, kind of like that scene in Austin Powers, like he gets frozen and they unfreeze him and then he goes through all of this like, you know, hilarious unfreezing process. Right. And Feminist text, Austin Powers. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, you know, and it's really funny because we get to see his butt. That's, that's <laughs> I mean, that's I comedy yeah. at its highest form. It's it's you have to go to years of comedy school to reach mm. that level. So it's true. <laughs> so the breathing rate also drops dramatically as there's less of a demand for oxygen because your heart rate is so right. so slow. Like I said, it takes a while to wake up from. And in fact, if they're waking prematurely for some reason, that can be really disastrous because that mm. takes so much energy to wake up from. The whole point of hibernation, or, or partially the point, is to preserve your, your energy stores throughout the winter because the food supply drops. Mm -hmm. So you're inducing the state of near death where you're not consuming energy so you can survive. And so if you wake up, use all this energy to wake up, you're kind of screwed so right. it's really important to set your alarm clock like your little tiny chipmunk alarm clock right otherwise right. it's yeah. like when your your battery on your phone is at like two percent but you still need to call your lift home right and it's like what if i call this lift it's gonna make my phone die and then i won't actually be able to take the rot it's just like that it, you know what? <laughs> that's what i'm saying chipmunks are exactly like that uh, yeah yeah that's i mean i couldn't put it more precisely myself you're welcome chimps, chimps are lifts that would yeah. be cool, though. Just like you call a lift. giant lift, like giant a giant chipmunk. chipmunk. Yeah, it's like the the cat bus thing in oh, my neighbor yeah. Totoro. Yeah, and then you can just like put all your belongings in his little cheeks. Oh, cute. Why isn't that a thing? Well, because it would probably kill us. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. So, some scientists are hibernation purists and don't really think bears qualify as true hibernators because their body temperature doesn't drop that much and it's not too hard for the bears to wake up. Okay. But, you know, it's it's kind of whatever your opinion is. <laughs> if you're in, in science, different science, sure. like some people are like, well, you know, it's close enough to hibernation. Hibernation is a spectrum and we need it, to respect that. It is actually literally described as a spectrum. <gasps> so, yeah, you're exactly right. So... Animals who are hibernating don't typically eat, although some do require little food stores, so they'll wake up briefly from hibernation, nibble on their little snack, and then mm -hmm. go back into hibernation. They also don't poop or pee, and they don't, produce, they don't produce fecal matter because their whole digestive system is slowed to a crawl, if not like shut down Shut entirely. Yeah. yeah, And they do produce urea, which is like the main ingredient in urine, but the body is able to break break it down and recycle it like bears break down urea into amino acids and mm. recycle it. Okay. Yeah, so they're not just like full of pee. They're Although I'm sure like pissing like... themselves in their bed, <laughs> pissing the bed. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh you put a bear's like paw in hot paw water. Hot yeah, yeah, and we oh no. Oh, Timmy peed himself. <laughs> I'm so angry. <laughs> So how do animals know when to go into hibernation? Is it based on like the, like they know it's Academy Awards season coming up or like, you know, what what's sort of the, the thing like the... Well, I mean, when Paddington 2 didn't get nominated or right. did get nominated but didn't win, right. he's like, well... I got to go into hibernation now just yeah. to cope with this snub right. <laughs> is my guess. I mean, yeah, you know that if you don't, if weather's not a reason to go into hibernation, trying to cope with an Oscar snub surely is. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2015, researchers discovered calendar cells inside animals who undergo physiological changes during winter, such as hibernation. And these cells are located inside a structure within the pituitary gland called the pars tuberalis. The cells change what proteins they produce during the year in response to the amount of daylight. Actually, humans have a similar structure uh, as the pars tuberalis <laughs> to the pars tuberalis. Yeah, yeah, that sounds, sounds exactly right to me. <laughs> Pars tuberalis, which indicates that we may also have some sort of internal calendar. Hmm. And research, even though we don't hibernate, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> yes. Uh, so your, your, your heart essentially stops and you stop pooping and peeing and yeah. Yeah, every winter. Wow. That's, that's pretty. <laughs> I'm a marvel. Wow. Uh, <laughs> or you're not getting enough fiber. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just constantly constipated. Yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, just call it hibernation, then it doesn't seem so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so 
there is a potential area of research suggesting that our immunity may change depending on the season, which means like maybe our immune system is giving us more protection based on like when we will bo- most need it. And mm-hmm. then that could potentially be regulated by this pars tuberilis. Okay. Got it. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> so many animals who hibernate will prepare a den and insulate it with fur, dirt, vegetation, other cozy things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some animals uh, will bulk up before hibernation, eating massive amounts of food. This is often like large omnivores or carnivores like mm-hmm. bears, while others will store food in their dens, meaning they'll wake up occasionally to eat. This is often the the tiniest hibernators like mice and chipmunks because mm-hmm. their little mm, yeah. tiny bodies can't <laughs> store enough fat and their mm-hmm. metabolism can't slow down enough to keep them alive throughout the entire winter. So they need, they need their snacks. And yeah. in fact, chipmunks will really, they'll like steal from each other. They'll fight over food stores. It gets quite quite nasty. There should be a movie about this. Mm, yeah, like oh, like a, a gritty reboot of Alvin and the Chipmunks, like yeah. the squeakquel, where it's just like it's like the Irishman. Yeah, like like I hear you know where my nuts are. <laughs> you do know exactly. You like do that. know you will have to die. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all in those squeaky chipmunk voices yeah. of like I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> It's like, oh my god, it's Alvin's head in her bed. Oh no. <laughs> but actually, some of the best hibernators are guess what? I bet you won't guess. This is where I'm Which s- which species? Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. Some of the best. Oh um raccoons. That's a good guess, but it's wrong yeah, because obviously I, knew it was. I, I love to do this, just spring a question on my guest because it makes me feel so smugly superior because <laughs> I have all the answers written down. Uh-huh. So some of the best hibernators are bats, which oh is surprising, right? Mm-hmm. So big brown bats in the wild can hibernate for around 60 days. Uh, but in captivity, one of these guys broke the record at 344 days. That's almost an entire year. That's almost an entire year. <laughs> It was, this is actually a little sad. It was kept in a refrigerator in a lab environment to see how long it would hibernate. Mm-hmm. And it eventually died of starvation. No. Like, cool. Scientists, like, once he, like, got to 344 days, you couldn't just be like, all right, buddy, that's long enough. Like, wake up. Let's get you some nachos. Right. Get you some just tater tots. Die? That's horrible. I know. But science you know, is science. evil. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but sometimes. It's sometimes a little gruesome. Yeah. yeah. So the for a lot of bat species, the heart rate can go from 1,000 beats per minute when they're actively mm-hmm. flying to only about 25. And some species of bats only need to take a breath every 45 minutes or even up to two hours during hibernation. Wild. That's it's They're like almost dead. You wouldn't be able, you would think here's a dead bat, but it's right. not. The North American red bat can lower its body temperature to freezing point and can even survive its body tissues freezing due in part to its thick fur, extremely low heart rate, and its high red blood cell count, which is really crazy. It's, I think, one of the only mammals I know of that can really just kind of shake off having tissue frozen like that without getting frostbite. Right. Yeah, I, I, I certainly can. <laughs> so if I go outside and it's lower than 50 degrees, forget about it. The first thing that happens to me when it gets cold is my nose just starts running like a faucet. Mm-hmm. Just streams and streams of like fluid and snot. I used to live on the East Coast and then it'd be great. You know, you go out and it's snowing. It's beautiful. And it's like, oh, I got to take a photo of me in the snow. And I turn the camera around. I'm just, I, I just streaming. <laughs> just every hole in my face streaming with with fluid yeah yeah and then like you you like your crown because like the wind right. is like your eyeballs freeze over does that happen to anyone else because it did to me <laughs> oh, when geez. i lived in oh, boston boy. but yeah i mean yeah i cannot withstand any amount of cold yeah. weather. so good for those bats yeah that they've really i i'm just so it's kind of shocking to me that bats i don't even really you don't think of bats as the traditional winter animal, but they're really good. They're really good hibernators. So proud. So proud. So why don't humans hibernate? 
The most obvious reason is that our ancestors didn't originally evolve in the frigid tundra, so primates don't generally need to hibernate. But it's not unheard of for a primate to hibernate. Like I mentioned before, one of the only types of primates who truly hibernates are dwarf lemur species in Madagascar. The only other primate known to hibernate is the pygmy slow loris, a tiny primate from Southeast Asia who can enter states of torpor for up to 63 hours at a time. But these regions in Madagascar and Southeast Asia only drop to about 40 degrees in the winter, certainly not as cold as the frigid areas where animals generally hibernate. So why do these small primitive primates do it? It's speculated that hibernation for small animals not only protects them from the colder, harsher climate during the winter, but to stay hidden away from predators who may be seeking to pack on extra calories. This may be another reason why humans don't need to hibernate. While we certainly have needed to fear some predators in our evolutionary history, our line of primates are larger, with more ways to defend ourselves than to bundle up and hide away. And when we started to migrate into colder regions, we already had our big, nerdy human brains to figure out other ways to adapt to the cold. But maybe in the future, humans will need to hibernate, like when we start to become space explorers. NASA is teaming up with professor of pharmacology and anesthesiologist Dr. Rob Henning to explore ways to induce hibernation in humans. After all, animals can hibernate without losing too much muscle tone due to how they slow their metabolism down. This would be of great use to space station dwellers who often must compensate for their weightlessness with exercises, which still doesn't make up for their loss in muscle tone and bone mass. So figuring out how to copy the animal's technique for hibernating would be great for astronauts. Or, hear me out, alternative idea, bears in space. Bears in space! When we return, we'll check out some Arctic adapters who go through a spectacular wardrobe change that's even more dazzling than those ugly holiday sweaters. I love home-cooked meals, but what I don't really love is grocery shopping. I swear, these grocery stores are designed like a labyrinth. With HelloFresh, it makes cooking easy, simple, and delicious. They have pre-packed ingredients, pre-measured spices and seasonings, everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. Now, I didn't think I was the type of person who could just, like, make risotto, but with HelloFresh, I was able to make steelhead trout over basil par risotto using their easy instructions and pre-measured ingredients. One of the things that's great about HelloFresh is that it helps you break out of ruts. Now, I'm a creature of habit. If I was left to my own devices, I would probably eat toast and hummus every day. But with HelloFresh, you can get new recipes every week, which makes it easy to learn new recipes and switch things up. And there's something for everyone. HelloFresh is also flexible. You can add extra meals to your weekly order, add-ons like garlic bread. Thank you. Yes, please garlic bread and you can easily change your delivery days and skip a week whenever you need get nine free meals with hellofresh by going to hellofresh.com creature nine and using code creature nine that's hellofresh.com creature nine and use code creature nine Imagine it's the dead of winter and you're snugly tucked in a remote cottage that your peepaw left you. It's a quaint old home all snowed in, but you've got hot cocoa and cans of your favorite type of beans, so you're all set for winter. You're in your little fur-lined bed all cozy and comfortable. You think back to your time with the local villagers who warned you to be quiet when you go home to your peepaw's old cottage for a terrifying invisible beast roams these snow-covered hills. And and kills anything that dares breathe too loudly. You chuckle to yourself. These villagers are probably bored and have a bit of cabin fever to invent such a ridiculous monster. But as you're drifting off to sleep, you hear a weird sound, a soft crunching, like the snow over your roof is being gently pressed upon. Santa's reindeer, perhaps? Then you hear a muffled sound, as if someone's making snow angels on the roof. You start to get a little nervous and think back to what the villagers said. You hold your breath, trying not to make a sound. You hear a scraping and what sounds like a huge vacuum sucking up snow. Then silence. Just the soft pattering of snowfall. 
It's been several minutes, so finally you exhale. That's when suddenly, boom, the whole house shakes, and then again, boom, boom, until finally, crash, a huge face and set of jaws crashes through the ceiling. You've just been the victim of one of the cutest Arctic adapters, the Arctic fox. Aw, terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So for humans, of course, they're no threat. They're about 18 to 25 inches long, not including the tail, and about 7 to 17 pounds, so like a little doggy. Mm -hmm. And like you probably guessed it, it lives in the Arctic. They live in burrows and snow tunnels, and they can survive temperatures as low as negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. That is pretty chilly. Pretty cold. Yep, their coats change from being tan and brown in the summer to fluffy white in the winter. And the coats help them keep warm and camouflaged, both in terms of hunting and from being hunted, because they they too have predators. Mm -hmm. So their huge fluffy tail is used to wrap themselves up like a blanket. It's very cute. They're omnivores and will eat berries and scraps that they find. They're very opportunistic Mm -hmm. because they have to be. They live in such a hostile environment. They'll even store bird eggs in their dens as snacks for later. So food can be very scarce in the tundra, and they will sometimes tail after polar bears and eat their leftovers. And they can travel up to 60 miles a day in search for food, which I don't think I've ever walked even like more than two miles for food. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that yeah, that is quite a distance. Are polar bears one of their... Uh, predators or yeah no okay yeah so they, they have, have to, be, to worry about polar be bears they, they basically have to worry about anything even like red foxes will hunt them sometimes oh, okay so, yeah they they're you know not the they're not the big big kid on the block i would say sure. but yeah as long as they give the polar bears their space and the mm-hmm. polar bears like bigger kills then they'll just eat the the yeah. scraps the leftovers got it So when winter intensifies and there are no scraps to scavenge, they have to become killers themselves. So their big ears have such sensitive hearing that they can listen for tiny rodents, mainly lemmings, deep under the snow and find their exact location. So once a rodent is located, they can dig into the snow or even more excitingly, they like to spring up and then dive into the snow. And I've seen videos. It's very cute. You want to look at one right (laughs) now? Yes. It's really funny because oh. they hop right up and then just face plant right into the snow. <laughs> but then do a little before that they do a little like toe touch. Yeah, they're doing a little digging because they found they found their location. And the snow can be really hard and icy, so mm-hmm. they're trying to break through down into the burrow. So they do big hop. Oh, oh, that was a good one. <laughs> if the snow's too soft, they can get kind of stuck uh-huh. and they kick their little legs in the air. And if it's too hard, they'll just like bounce off of it. So they have to get pretty good at determining like where's the best place to dive in. Otherwise, it gets really embarrassing. Their butts just right in the air and they're flailing around. Oh, that was a face plant. But when they get it, when they get it right, they can snatch a little lemming right out of its bed. Also, I had no idea that lemmings were real things until just now. <laughs> I thought they were just that little that computer, computer game. game. Thing. No, they're real. Good. Al- although they don't all run off of a cliff at the same time. That's uh, a, I see. that's a myth. Okay. Uh, perpetrated by the evil documentarian industry. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, it looks like ritualistic face planting. Mm -hmm. It's extremely cute. And they can smell lemming popsicles two feet under the snow. Wow. So what I think is interesting is people usually see the the Arctic fox when they're completely fluffy in their white winter coat. Mm -hmm. But they don't see them between seasons as much. And it's very funny. Yeah, I don't know what that looks like. So let me show you. Here's the fox. With the spotty oh patches my. of his coat growing in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Looks a little scraggly. Yeah. Oh, but still cute. Still very but cute. But very patchy. Yeah. And then here here he is uh, shedding the coat. <laughs> he kinda so looks- this would be like springtime? Yes. It, yes. Okay. This is shot in springtime. It kind of looks like, what would you say it looks like? Um, oh, good grief. Um, it does look like good grief. It's personified. (laughs) It's just like, I'm trying to think of like what, like, maybe like Jack Nicholson as he's Mm. like getting, as he's, you know, getting up there in age. 
you know, oh, he's yeah. looking a bit haggard and uh, bits are falling off of him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sort of in in sort of chunks. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I see that. I do see that, but still cute in, in some yeah. sort of ineffable way. Of course. <laughs> so other animals obviously change their coats during the winter as well, including snowshoe hares, stoats, peary caribou, and the snowy owl. And uh, one thing that's interesting is kind of like, how do you think, like, how do they do this? Like, it, it, se- it seems mm-hmm. magical that they know every winter just to change their coat. So one thing is that the, the fur itself isn't changing color, like, once it's already grown. Mm-hmm. Because the base hair, fur, like, once it's already grown, it's not, that part of it is not really alive anymore. Right. So it's the hair follicles themselves that are changing at that level so they have to grow a totally new coat so similar to animals that undergo hibernation they have a body clock that triggers hormonal changes that causes the change in growth of denser white coats from the follicular level Mm -hmm. and so that's why between seasons you see these kind of jack (laughs) (laughs) nicholson-esque patchy Uh (laughs) with the with the weird little little tufts of white hair growing in or or and then like in the springtime they shed it so it all comes out in these big tufts and (laughs) i think it's to me really cute yeah just like they look like they ran through a chicken coop but then they got sticky (laughs) and then all covered in in feathers (laughs) oh that's a great description but there is an animal that also has a coat change I don't think you'd ever guess what it is and the method that it does it is really crazy so beluga whales actually molt their skin every summer Oh, and their skin over time will become a little more yellow and a little more marred and that's not good for wanting to blend in with the ice uh-huh. uh, especially in the winter as you know they're surrounded by these icy um, icebergs <laughs> <laughs> And they they actually do molt, and mm-hmm. they in order to get that old layer of skin to come off, they have a spa day or multiple spa oh, days. Treat yourself. Treat yourself. Self care. Belugas yes. know about self care. Uh, I could take a lesson from a beluga whale. We really all could. <laughs> They're great. Uh, we we talked about them on a previous episode. They are one of the only whales who can actually swivel their heads freely. Oh, which means that they can communicate by looking at each other and using expressions more <gasps> than other whales. Wow. Yeah. So I I just I love because now I'm imagining them like kind of filing down their back and just like throwing their head back and looking really content which it's like an an herbal essence commercial oh my god they would be so good in an herbal essence commercial (laughs) like you know just like (laughs) yeah tell me about it yeah so they will rub their bodies on gravel or river sand to help exfoliate the outer layer of skin Mm -hmm. and this reveals that icy white skin underneath that will blend in better with their surroundings and yeah, I just, I want to, I would love to join belugas on a spa day. Now, I don't, my objective wouldn't be to look more icy white than I already <laughs> am <laughs> with all my blue veins popping out oh, everywhere. Right. I mean, it's not, it just being exfoliated feels nice. You mm-hmm. know, I do an, an apricot scrub on my face sometimes. And oh, yeah. Then, and then, it, you know, you, you leave the shower feeling refreshed and right. rejuvenated. So yeah. I get it. There are certain skin exfoliating products that advertise that you'll see the like pilled up layers of skin to slough off your body and it's that's an extreme level that is a dedication to the exfoliation that i feel like belugas would really appreciate true like if you can't see your skin kind of coming up in clumps like is it really exfoliation (laughs) yeah right yeah i I don't know it's like extreme extreme (laughs) body (laughs) yeah yeah I, i went to a spa where they offered that treatment where apparently they just really scrub you down until you're raw and like get all the dead skin off. And I was like, you know what? My dead skin can hang around a little while longer. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with some of it staying. Yeah, behind. you know what? You know what? It'll leave when it wants to leave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Throughout human history, we've had to figure out how to adapt to the coldness of winter and in some cases camouflage ourselves against the snow. But that big white winter blanket presents another problem, snow blindness. Snow blindness, also known as photokeratitis, is damage to the eyes caused by UV rays from the sun, sort of like an eyeball sunburn. Oof. It's painful and it can cause temporary loss in vision. When sunlight reflects off snow, 80% of UV radiation is reflected back. That's a nifty reminder to always wear sunscreen and sunglasses even in the winter. But how did we cope with snow blindness before we had sunglasses, like in prehistoric times? Well, short answer, we actually did have sunglasses. Prehistoric people who lived in the Arctic Circle invented snow goggles over 4,000 years ago. These goggles were carved from bone, antlers, or walrus ivory. Later, they could be carved from driftwood. They were carved to fit the wearer's eyes, with a thin, long, horizontal slit to see out of. This slit allowed the wearer to see while minimizing the amount of reflected UV light from entering the eye. Sometimes black soot was rubbed inside the goggles to cut down on glare. In some ways, these goggles remain superior to modern goggles, as they don't ice over in harsh conditions. That's why these goggles, the first ever sunglasses, remained a vital piece of equipment for people of the Arctic Circle for thousands of years. And though they weren't necessarily designed to be fashionable, they look pretty dang cool too. Speaking of cool, when we return we'll talk about how some animals survive being turned into living popsicles. Well, the holidays are coming up and that means traveling and travel really stresses me out, but this year I'm actually a little less stressed and that's because I have an away travel suitcase. Away suitcases are thoughtfully designed to make travel easier and less unpredictable. They have an optional built-in battery that you can use to recharge your phone so you don't have to fight for dominance for those positions right next to the outlet by inflating your neck pouch and ramming people with your antlers. Away suitcases make lightweight and durable suitcases. They're made to last a lifetime of travel, and with a limited lifetime warranty, they'll replace or fix your bag if it ever gets damaged. One of the most stressful things about travel for me is packing and trying to get everything in the suitcase and worrying about it overflowing and it not being lit on the plane, but with their hard outer shell and an inner built-in compression pad, you can pack in more and it'll always be the same dimensions. It's also really easy to move around. It's got four 360-degree spinner wheels guaranteed for a smooth ride. It's like traveling with a rectangular plastic butler who carries all my stuff and charges my phone. It's incredible. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com creature and use promo code creature during checkout. That's awaytravel.com creature and use promo code creature during checkout for $20 off a suitcase. When Jack Frost nips at your toes, sometimes he bites off a whole chunk. Frostbite is damage to the tissues, usually on extremities such as fingers, toes, and noses, as a result of being exposed to extreme low temperatures. While frostbite may not seem like a great coping strategy, the fact that your extremities suffer frostbite first is caused in part by your body's last-ditch effort to save itself in freezing temperatures. The blood vessels throughout the body narrow, which is called vasoconstriction. This prevents heat from escaping out your extremities, keeping it inside towards the more vital parts of your body such as your brain, guts, and chest. Normally, this only results in cold, maybe slightly painful fingers and toes, but if you don't warm up soon, the process of frostbite will begin. First comes frost nip where the extremities start to lose feeling and go unnaturally pale. Blood flow to the outer parts of your body is reduced to the point where the tissues will start to become damaged if not warmed up soon enough. Frost nip can even result in a sunburn-like injury due to the surface of the skin being frozen off. But this is not as concerning as frostbite. If you don't warm your fingers and toes in time, your tissues will fall below freezing point and ice crystals start to form in the cells. Ice crystals, biologically speaking, are ticking time bombs for cells, either destroying them during the freezing process itself or causing the cells to rupture when they start to thaw. 
This is why frostbite must be treated carefully and not warmed up too fast, or the damage will be even more severe. Frostbite can range in superficial damage and blisters to the skin to the loss of entire digits or body parts if muscle and other tissues are affected. Humans aren't really built to endure being frozen, but some animals cope with being popsicles surprisingly well. So, I know that we have a lot of hopes that Walt Disney's frozen head could be brought back to life if you mm. thought, of course, Walt Disney's head wasn't frozen. Don't sue us. <laughs> Anyways, one of the problems with cryogenics in humans is, sure, you could freeze a body, but unthawing it is really difficult to do without those ice crystals just like rupturing the cells due to the nature that the cells will contain liquid and then if the liquid density changes that can just burst open the sure. cell mm -hmm. um but you know we're not the only animals on earth and some animals actually manage this fabulously well oh. so wood frogs we've actually talked about on the show in our eat pray die episode but i think they bear another mention because they can remain frozen at zero degrees Fahrenheit for up to seven months. Wow. Uh, yeah, they're found all over North America, including in boreal forests. They're this little brown frog. They're very un unassuming looking. They don't look like some kind of science fiction, Star Wars, blue, mm. you know, baby Yoda thing. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they go through a process of partially freezing, then rethawing over and over again until the glucose levels in their, in their cells rise to an abnormal degree. And glucose, which is also, you know, sugars, uh, can actually act as an antifreeze. Now, that doesn't oh. mean you can, like, eat a bunch of sugar and then survive being frozen. Mm -hmm. But these frogs, by introducing the high glucose levels inside each of their cells, will protect the cells from the freezing process, keeping water inside the cells, which keeps them alive and in suspended animation. So, like, the, the wood frogs become so frozen, they're, like, literally like a rock. You could throw oh. it against a brick wall and they'd shatter. Something I do every Friday. Yeah, you know that. Thursdays the, are my blood Thursdays day. are the blood balloon against a brick wall. <laughs> mm -hmm. Friday is smashing frozen frogs against it. Yeah. I mean, it is like we all need ways to blow off steam. Exactly. And if blowing off steam means shattering a bunch of frozen wood frogs, I mean, I'm not going to judge that. I think I would, but... Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I blow off steam by, like, you know, making things out of clay, so... That's much less violent. Like making pottery. Way. Yeah. You know, smashing I mean, frogs. <laughs> it's all the same thing. Right. It's it's therapeutic. Self-care. Yes. You Again, know? the, the belugas, belugas spa day is right, what exactly. you should do. I want to have a spa day with belugas, and then we could have great fun just smashing, smashing a bunch frogs. of frozen frogs. It, it sounds Where lovely. Where is the alternative rock band smashing frogs? <gasps> It's that right should here. have been a right thing. now. Yeah. Right you now, you and me. I play the clarinet, so I, I don't know if you bring any instruments to the table. I sort of play the ukulele badly. Okay. okay. I mean, so, I haven't played clarinet in like twenty years, so right. I don't remember well, it. I think we have a band. I think that's yeah. band. Mm -hmm. That's band. We did it. Yes. Yes. Smashing Frogs, the band, <laughs> we did it. Clarinet and ukulele, neither very good, <laughs> but it is band now. It is band. So. There's another contender for the best animal at enduring popsicle-ness, oh, which is the Siberian salamander. So this is found in, well, Siberia mm -hmm. and Northeast Asia in wet woods. So that's like wooded areas where you have ponds and such. Mm -hmm. So they can survive being frozen at negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, but for shorter periods of time. So that's a colder temperature mm -hmm. than the wood frogs but they can't last quite as long. They can last up to 45 days, but they also have a lower survival rate. So mm -hmm. they're sort of the more risk takers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so is the idea that like ponds that they live in will like freeze over and then they'll, but they'll survive like within the frozen. Yeah, being okay. frozen in the permafrost, yeah. Got it. Yeah, so um, though there are stories of these salamanders surviving being frozen in permafrost for years and waking up, like, those haven't really been confirmed uh -huh. uh, scientifically. It kind of seems unlikely given that laboratory research shows they can only survive like 45 days. Yeah. In, in, uh, but I guess it's technically possible. I, I just don't. I'm pretty doubtful. 
But like they're let's like, put a Siberian find out. Right. Let's put a bunch of Siberian salamanders like in the snow mm-hmm. and see how they do. Yeah. And sit there for you know several years. Several years. Can't yes. wait. Can't wait. <laughs> I mean, if I if we have enough water balloons full of blood and enough frozen frogs and our beluga friends, mm-hmm. then you know we'll be fine. Exactly. We'll be set. Yeah. So now I want to talk about painted turtles. So these are pretty red and yellow streaked turtles that are found in North America, and they live on land and in freshwater aquatic environments. Mm. And painted turtles don't hibernate. They brumate because they're reptiles. And I am a really pedantic person. (laughs) (laughs) So they breathe through their asses during winter to survive. (gasps) Tell me more. Uh, This is my favorite part. When their ponds freeze over, Mm -hmm. they can't rise to the surface to take a breath, which seems like a pretty bad problem to have Mm -hmm. when you need to breathe because you know they're not fish so since they can't breathe using their lungs they'll use their little buttholes (laughs) and actually a turtle's butthole is a cloaca and a cloaca is the all-purpose butt of reptiles birds amphibians and sharks and also monotremes such as platypus they all have cloaca the cloaca is the hole that can do everything so it can it can excrete poop and urine it can reproduce it houses the reproductive organs it can lay eggs it's just it's, it's like just a, a triple threat yes and yes for <laughs> disgusting things that bodies yeah, do the, it's the omnihole <laughs> omnihole yes yeah. so the blood vessels around the cloaca are able to extract oxygen from water molecules so they engage in cloacal respiration which is butt breathing mm-hmm. and their cloacas suck in oxygen from the water like butt gills wow yeah Incredible. That's my favorite thing so far that I've learned today. (laughs) Yes. If we could just breathe with our butts a little bit, you know? Swimming would be so much easier. Yeah. Because your butt is usually submerged. Right. So if you can extract the oxygen with your butthole. You know, they used to try to save people who were drowning victims by blowing smoke into their butthole. And that's like is that true. Yes. Wow. And it's I mean, it's true in that it happened. It's yeah, not true in that, that it, it works. helped. <laughs> but yeah, so that's where I think that's where the saying the blowing smoke up my ass comes uh-huh. from. Because yeah, it's like it doesn't actually do anything, but it's acting as if you're helping. So Got it. yeah, and it, it was thought that this would revive someone suffering from drowning. And I guess the only way it would work is just the surprise of someone blowing smoke up your butt might kind of yeah, bring you back. But I, I don't think it, there was any actual. How would that even work? Like you'd put a tube? They would have like a butt? special butt pipe, I think, that they stuck in the butt <laughs> and then blow smoke up the butt. Okay. I don't know why they thought that would work. I what era are we talking about here? Is this like 1900, 1700s? 1700s okay. to early 1800s, okay. I think. Got yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't know anything back then about no, science and no, bodies. No, no, we were we thought we could just go into a human body and toss things around mm-hmm. and see what happened. That, those were the days of like, yeah, you have like seven types of bile in your body and nothing right. else. Right. Let's put slugs in your eyes. Just, you know, <laughs> see what happens. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I'm trying. I am a <laughs> I'm a medical doctor in 1750, and I don't know. No one knows. No. <laughs> let's let's breathe through our butts and just smash some frozen frogs, and maybe that'll cure your consumption. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. I am trying my best. <laughs> my name is Hieronymus J. Fitzwellen, and I am trying my best. Yeah. Good name. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I want to talk about something pretty cute and it is so like if you don't have the special trick of breathing through your butt or Mm -hmm. being able to be be frozen solid what do you do and how do you evolve in a short period of time to survive just freezing cold temperatures so i want to talk about wild yakut horses they are found in yakutia in siberia and they can survive temperatures as low as 90, negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Which is fairly cold. I would say so. A little, yeah. little chilly. So these are horses that are 
13 hands. Now, I'm not a horse girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know what hands are or what that means. Like, if they have 13 hands, what's going on? So I looked it up. Mm-hmm. Apparently, a hand is four inches, and the you measure it at the horse's highest point of the withers. Oh, the horse withers. The horse oh, withers. Of course. Now, I didn't know what withers were, so I looked that up, too. Mm-hmm. And apparently, the withers is the ridge between the shoulder blades of the horse. Okay. So you put your hands on the withers. You, you have to have four-inch hands, I guess. You put your hands... I bet my hands are exactly four inches. Oh, you'd be great at measuring horses then. I would. New career for me. Ad wanted someone with exactly four inch hands to measure horses. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that's like at, it is four feet tall at the highest point between the shoulders is what 13 hands means. I see. Okay. You know, come over here, horse people. I just want to talk to you for a second. Why? Why hands? Why measure it that way? Yeah. Because I think... Hands are only ever used to measure specifically horses. I don't think any other, and I mean, slide into my mentions. Horses, I might be wrong about this, but do horses not like a tape measure? Do they get real? Do they get angry at a tape measure? Is this why just hands are necessary? Desperate for human contact. I see. They, they just don't, they don't. Want, it's too informal. They want to measure. the laying of the hands. They want They're to be evangelicals. Exactly. <laughs> Most important fact about these Yakut horses is that they are super, super, super duper fluffy. They are <gasps> so fluffy. They are the fluffiest horses you I've will ever see. I've never seen a fluffy see. horse. Well, good news. <laughs> you got pictures? I do. They're so poofy. They, are, they look like if you, I guess if you put a horse, a, a long-haired horse in the dryer and just like it came out and it was just a poof ball. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the cartoons where something that's not supposed to be put in a dryer comes out of a dryer and it's just a little poof ball. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like this. They're so fluffy. I just want to dive my face right in there. <laughs> I'll put my hands on this horse. I bet your hands would disappear into the I know. How do you, floof. How do you even know how many hands this horse has? Right? You can't see your hands. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They are very, very cute. They have the thickest coat of any horse, and they're kind of chunky and compact Mm -hmm. built, which is good because you don't want to, like we talked about with frostbite, the more compact you are in the cold, Mm kind of the better because your your blood doesn't have to work so hard to pump out to your extremities. They have slow metabolic rates relative to other horses, and they can dig in the snow for food, like like. Dig, 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 mm-hmm. find find some, some vegetation under all that snow. Mm-hmm. And they actually didn't evolve from native species of horses in the area. Instead, these were horses that were brought to the area by the Yakut people 800 years ago, around the 13th century. And they're an example of rapid evolutionary adaptation brought on by human interaction. So we brought, we brought horses who were not adapted to this cold weather over 800 years ago. And over that period of time, they developed these adaptations, like being really, really fluffy, Mm -hmm. being stout and having that slower metabolic rate. And they even have anti-freezing properties of glucose in the blood, Hmm. like frogs, like the the wood frogs. Not, you can't freeze, you can't turn it into a horse sickle, like that won't work. (laughs) But it it does help prevent frostbite. So what would have happened, uh, based on what I know about evolution, um, which I am not an expert by any means, but I did take a few, you know, anthropology classes in college. So, um, yes, brag. (laughs) Um, So they, um, they would have brought these horses over and I'm guessing most of them would have died, but the ones that happened to be maybe fluffier or like carried the genes of fluffiness would have survived yeah. and then they would mate with each other and then keep yeah. perpetuating that trait that enabled them to survive. Exactly. Thus the fluffiest horses we've ever seen. Yeah, and I'm I don't know this for a fact, but it is possible that we even helped along because humans are great well, depending on how you de- define the word great, we're great at selective breeding mm-hmm. and creating <laughs> ridiculous features in animals. But in this case, because the horses were very crucial to our survival as humans, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that we maybe people saw selected okay, the fluffiest saw, horses or like we saw horses that were doing really well. Mm-hmm. And we're like, OK, we got to get this this 
one breeding a lot of baby horses because mm-hmm. they've survived and they're they're doing really well. You know, I, I think we could have it's well within our abilities to have done that at that time. So, Got it. you know, it was probably a mixture of I would say it's mostly the environmental pressures, but then maybe we, they were assisted in mm-hmm. their survival by humans and then that's how they evolved so quickly without just immediately all tying up. Right. <laughs> Actually, comparisons of the Yakut horses to mammoth genome found similarities in metabolism, hair growth, and body proportions, which is an example of convergent evolution. So convergent evolution is when you have very similar traits, but they evolve at different points in evolutionary history, and they're like in different species, Mm -hmm. or in the same species, but at different times. Got it. So one of the important things about Yakut horses is that they are mostly wild horses, so they don't, they aren't kept in pens all year round. They're not kept at a corral or kept, they're, they're allowed to roam wild, And Yakut horse breeders have a really tough job because the horses get to go live free and wild for much of the time. And the horse breeders have to convince them to come back to get fed and get medical attention Mm -hmm. and to help them in their breeding. And so they'll drive out for miles and miles to search for these horses. And then once they get there, they'll call them. They really have to convince them to come in because it's these big, these herds of horses. Mm -hmm. You can't just like lasso all the horses and have them come (laughs) in. You you have to kind of, it's got to be a cooperative effort. Like, hey, we got, hey, (laughs) hey, Hey. remember me? Remember? Remember, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, oh, good. This is good. Yes. And so they also will like call them out, like be like, hey, come on, Fred the horse. Probably not named Fred, but you know. um, I think there's definitely a Fred in the group. Come on, Ginger and and And, uh, Jasper. Jasper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not clearly I'm not good at measuring nor naming horses. I mean, I named a bear Timmy earlier in this episode. Uh, so. That's a good bear name though. Thank you. Don't sell, sell yourself short on that. Ah, thanks. So this this habit of letting animals roam free and then calling them back in over long distances is actually also done in Norway and Sweden and has been done since the Middle Ages. And there is this practice called kulning, which is the term for a herding call to let livestock know it's time to come home. So it is a specific type of song or call that has similar mechanics to yodeling so that it can bounce off of the hills and and really ring for long distances so that the livestock can hear it even when they're far off into the mountains. And typically it's a tradition carried on by women because historically they were tasked with tending to flocks and herds, uh, although men do also carry on the tradition. Mm -hmm. And each herder or shepherd would have their own unique call for their livestock. And this, so I have a clip from a very talented kulning singer. Uh, Her name's Joanna Jinton, and she's calling her cows. I'll, I'll provide a link to the full video in the mm-hmm. show notes. I really recommend looking at it. It's it's really hauntingly beautiful, but I'll just play a really short clip so you get an idea of what it sounds like. And in this clip, you can see the little cow just like they're ambling on over like, oh, okay, I'm oh, going. I, I recognize that. So is the idea that all of the the uh, animals that um, get herded by the particular herders like recognize the sound of like their specific I call? think so. Yeah, I think oh. so. And I, I think they, they'll probably recognize the voice of their, their herder mm-hmm. and they'll recognize the specific call they'll they know to come come home because then oh. they get fed and they get a warm place That's beautiful <laughs> yeah <laughs> i really love this the practice of letting these animals just wander around frolic around and play and mm-hmm. <laughs> occasionally get eaten by predators but you know <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and then you're just like all right come home and they're like sure <laughs> wow that's how Man, that's how sh- farming should be done here too. You know, just let the let the let the pigs just run around the city, yeah. do their thing. <laughs> I've seen Babe Pig in the city. That's they how it should do be. It. Exactly the the renowned documentary Babe Pig <laughs> in the city. I love I loved the George both. Miller famous documentarian. <laughs> I loved both of those movies when I was a kid. Same. I was always horrified at everyone's just like, yeah, you'll be bacon someday, and he's like, what? And they're, they're like, calm down. It's the way of things here. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to do an update 
to crowboarding. So a little while ago, we did an episode on play, and I talked about crowboarding, where there's this video of a crow picking up a metal lid to like a jar, Mm -hmm. and he walks up a snowy roof, sits on the lid, and slides down, (laughs) and does this a few times. And of course, okay, so this is just one example, you know, maybe this was just some some fluke man you know malfunctioning crow or something <laughs> but uh actually i found online that there were there have been more sightings of crows and ravens sliding down snow-covered roofs just to fly back and repeat it over and over again so this is an observed behavior Ooh. that ravens and crows do and they're just doing it for fun we don't know why don't they're know. doing it okay. but there seems to be no purpose right. and one of the definitions of play is that it's a repetitive action that has no purpose right and then like logically you would conclude that it is just for fun or for Mm -hmm. some some pleasurable reason right and and then there's another report that birds would fly to a snow-covered stump and then they would slide down the slope on their backs and sometimes they would hold sticks as they would slide down oh just like skiers do Mm -hmm. with their whatever those things are called their ski poles yeah Yeah. (laughs) their crow poles (laughs) i love that yeah sometimes they seem to do it for attention like they'll slide down a steep incline and then seem to try to attract mates by showing them how cool they are at crow boarding and sometimes they do it because there's this lodge that's been in their family for generations and this rich kid comes and it's like i'm gonna buy your lodge and then you won't be allowed back in it and the crows are like we'll see about that and then they raise them down death mountain (laughs) just like the plot of oh my god what movie is that crap it's that it's a john cusack movie i think snow runnings it's <laughs> yes the famous movie snow running um <laughs> better off dead let's see john his name is john cusack they parody that plot in um movie. in an episode of yeah South better Park. off dead okay it's a 1985 american teen black comedy film starring john cusack <gasps> do i know film or do i know film <laughs> i do have a master's According- degree in screenwriting i hate to bring it up <laughs> In the town of Green... Okay, according to uh, Wikipedia, in the town of Greendale, Northern California, high school student, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Am I totally wrong about this? Oh, no, no, no. They try to ski the K-12, the highest peak in towns, in hopes of getting winning back Beth's love. Oh, right. There's a race, and whoever wins the race gets to get the uh, woman as a reward, because women are prizes. Yeah, I, you know, like I actually was weird. I went to this arcade and there was this big vending machine, and then there were just a bunch of ladies in there. And I was like trying to, trying to like like get them, and they're like, "Please let us out of this giant claw machine. We're actually stuck in here because we tried to get the bears out by reaching our hands in, and we got sucked in." But I think that was just to add to the charm of the machine. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> Okay, so back to the crows who are sledding for fun. Now, wait, you suggested that maybe it's like, could be sort of like the winter sports version of like the dances that birds do for like mating dances. Because they need a training montage to get better at sledding. It's just this little crow like lifting sticks with its feet. <laughs> I would watch that training montage. I would watch sure. a whole movie trilogy about crows snowboarding and winning the winning the crow girls as prizes yeah. and winning the lodges as prizes. <laughs> Sometimes the crow girl wins skis as a prize. Sometimes the crow girl gets to ski. So, yes, yes. But not the crow, a lot. The crow girl skis sometimes, and sometimes the lodge skis and wins the mm. prize of the of skier. Itself. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ski- yeah. You just mix it all up. Mm-hmm. Crows are in it. I think we could we could get get so out of spec script. We need this franchise. Yes. And then we also need the chipmunks as mafia. Right. Right. Stories. Right. Oh, and we could have a crossover. Like this could be sort of the crow boarding universe right that we need like an animal cinematic universe yes yes the crow boarding cinematic universe <laughs> we've got the chipmunks who are like killing each other for for acorns mm-hmm. we got the crows trying to 
win ski contests. You got beluga, like a sort of bridesmaids movie, but with belugas going out and getting oh, a spa sure. day. Yeah. Uh-huh. But everything goes horribly wrong. But then at the end, they found out the, the the belugas were the friends you made along the way. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of content here. There's a lot of mineable content. Guys, mu- movie people, like mineable me. content. Yeah, exactly. Again, I, I'm a screenwriter. Yeah. <laughs> Well, then, Gotta start writing these scripts. It. Start write me, please write me crowboarding screenplay. Okay, we'll do. Yes, but we, we'd call it. Oh, there's got to be a, a pun or something. Well, I mean, crowboarding, I mean, crowboarding in is itself. the pun, but like right. we need an extra one just to send it over the top. Like, why is this so hard for me? Uh, I've, t- I've taken improv cor- classes. Corvus, <laughs> not me, Corvus. <laughs> Wait, what is Corvus? That's the 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 family of the. Oh, I see. That that might that's sort that of a presidential work, slogan. Yeah, it's, maybe it's a little too um, it's too, maybe too highbrow, right? For the for the audience, we'll figure it out. Or if you have crowboarding, we'll have a raven good time. <laughs> there we are. There it is. There that's it is. It. Uh-huh. There it is. Send it to print. Yeah, uh, DreamWorks, drop that up. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I've had a blast. Yeah, this is really fun. Do or a raven good a time. A raven good time. <laughs> oh, and there goes my audience. They're all gone now. Bye. <laughs> Sorry about that, you guys. Um, do you have anything to plug? Oh, sure. Um, you can uh, listen to my podcast right here on this same network. Yeah, uh, I do see you guys around a lot. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> um, it is called The Bechdel Cast, and we uh, analyze movies through a feminist lens. How dare you? Um, I know. <laughs> How dare I? Um, and you can follow me. You can check that out at Bechdelcast on Twitter and Instagram, and then you can follow me on those places as well at Caitlin Durante. You can find us on on side inside the internet, creaturefeaturepod.com, creaturefeaturepod on Instagram, creaturefeetpod on Twitter. That's F E A T, not F E E T. That's something very, very different. <laughs> uh, and I have been Katie Golden, and you can find me on Twitter, and you can also find me on Twitter at ProBirdRights, where I ensure that r- birds will one day take the reins to this planet and really steer it in the right direction. A more birdie direction. I love it. Thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super groovy song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.